Greetings and salutations, board game fans. The Dice Pirates are back. This is episode 28. We're going to be breaking down some legacy games, really get into the nitty-gritty of the genre, what makes some games work, what really holds some of the games in this genre back. We're going to dive into that. I am Ian, your captain, as always, joined by Matt, and we are once again joined by Dr. Dennis. How you doing, Dennis? You know, I've, I've kind of noticed in uh, recent episodes, you guys have stopped using uh, nautical puns. And I'm kind of sad that I missed that boat. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> I blame Matt. He's clearly slacking. That was the one job he had, and he just refuses to do it. I've just been feeling rudderless lately. Uh, you know you know what I mean? <laughs> Rud rudderless. I've, uh, you know, you, you, I, I've... I don't know another one. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. That's your homework. Homework for next time. For uh, Yeah. Port and starboard. Uh, those are terms. All right. Boats. We're going we're, we're to move on before you embarrass yourself too much. <laughs> we're going to get into our soapbox. And I actually have one that I want to talk about real quick. We've made a couple trips recently. And during our trips, we've been swinging by some like used stores people turning you know used music used books and used board games and something i found is that a lot of these stores will actually have really good games in stock because often they may not know what they have necessarily or people will turn in games that are opened and so they might look like they've been used but realistically they got the game they didn't want it they don't really play those sort of games and they just turned it in after opening it seeing it a huge amount of pieces and they're like eh maybe not at one store i found several unopened copies of seven wonders betrayal was there we found a perfectly immaculate copy of sagrada it's been really neat just to see how much you can find and how great the deals can be and often there's i mean often they're very very little used mostly all the pieces are there it's definitely something to think about if you are looking to get some cheaper games and especially as you know games start to go up in price it's something to think about when you're looking for your next game i love that uh i used to thrift store shop a lot when i was in college for like vintage t-shirts and obscure paperback books but i never thought about board games this was kind of like pre my board gaming days but i, I love the thrill of like finding a really good buy at a thrift store or something uh something awesome for a good deal and uh now that board games are more popular they'll probably be like uh recirculating into the the thrift store market uh it's really cool that you found some pretty good like contemporary games like sagrada uh for a good for a good price oh yeah for sure matt i know you have a reaction that you want to bring to us what do you got guys guys i cannot stop thinking about this like ginormous i don't even know how big it is what looks to be <laughs> like 15 inch tall plastic galactus uh figure that simon is trying to put out completely stretching the definition of the word many into absurdity <laughs> uh so okay a few, couple weeks back uh uh simon announced uh, their next big uh, Kickstarter project is going to be Marvel Zombies, a zombie side game. Uh, just when you thought, surely we're, we can't come up with any more ways to do zombie side. Oh, but wait. <laughs> yes, yeah, they did. Uh, this time it's Marvel. Uh, it's going to be more of that dice chunking zombie side gameplay that you've grown to love and or tolerate. But this time 
they're Marvel characters, you see? You know, Simon is a wonderful company who makes a lot of great games that I love, but then every once in a while they just drop something like this that I'm like, I just, this is such a blatant money grab that it's crazy. But, you know, it's so obviously this is probably not the game for me, but the most notable thing about it is one of the uh, expansions that they've already announced, because, of course, before the game's out, you go ahead and announce the first expansion. The first expansion is a Galactus expansion that comes with a model of Galactus that is looks to be roughly like 20 times the size of a normal It is miniature. two feet tall, one and a half feet wide. That's fully insane. I just keep imagining like what kind of a what kind of a real goober. Can you imagine this moment like at the table <laughs> when it's like, "Oh, oh guys, uh looks like Galactus is here and you pull this thing out from under the table like a little statue and plop it down onto the game board, this 2-foot tall monstrosity. The table plastic. promptly collapses underneath the weight of the mini. So the expansion is literally a box of plastic. Like Yes. <laughs> I mean, you are paying... I, I couldn't even imagine how much this is going to cost to bring... To have this thing manufactured and shipped to you, this huge hunk of plastic that truly does nothing. It just sits on the table. Does it look awesome? I mean, of course it looks awesome. So no, you don't have to... We don't have to debate that. It look, Of course it looks awesome. Does it add anything to the game? I don't know. Your mileage may vary. But it's definitely absurd. It's definitely ridiculous. It, uh, it feels like... I'll jump the shark moment to me in board gaming. Uh, <laughs> like we're going to look back and it's like the, the two foot tall zombie Galactus mini quote mini is the thing is the moment that it all started to go off the rails for board gaming, but maybe not. That's my rant. I have really nothing constructive to say about it. I just can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, there are several Warhammer minis that are roughly the same size. You're looking at, you know, two feet tall, two feet long. So there is precedence for this. But that is, of course, Warhammer, which I believe, that's really its own space. I mean, if you're into Warhammer, you are into Warhammer. I mean, I guess that they did this with a giant Cthulhu not too long ago with Cthulhu Death May Die. So this is not really the first time, but there's just something about uh, this Galactus that has just set me off. The other thing that I find hilarious about it is it's a zombie Galactus, which raises all sorts of questions about how (laughs) this Galactus, the reader of worlds, even become a zombie in the context of the fiction of this. It's fully <laughs> insane. Um, I do also kind of have this vision in my mind of like uh, in a post-apocalyptic world, these giant resin galactuses surviving and being discovered by civilizations far in the future and wondering what is this strange, <laughs> what is this strange deity? We're going to go ahead and move on to our game for this week and i actually want to do something a little bit different so we've talked about the world series of board gaming a couple times and i just thought it was really fascinating fascinating concepts so i wanted to throw this to you guys so the way that this works is you can buy a ticket and the ticket that you buy will give you a a different amount of games a different amount of tickets that you can buy in and, and play so let's say you know you guys jump in you're gonna go ahead and you know, you're going to spend a little bit, not a ton, so you're going to get the two-game pass. So you get two games, two opportunities to win and make it through to, like, the later rounds. What two games out of that list would you guys drop into? What do you think are your best games, and how do you? Th- what do you think you would have the best chance of winning at? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Should we read the games really quick, just for the, for the listener, so you don't have to... Yeah, so while you guys are deciding, we'll kind of go through the the games they got. It's actually quite a list. There's a lot of variation here. You got Seven Wonders, a classic. You have a Choir, a Zool, 
Blood Rage, Brass Birmingham. The lesser version of Brass. It's it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Carcassonne, Catan, because you can't have it without Catan, Dominant Species Marine, Dune Imperium, Gaia Project, Great Western Trail, Raw, Splendor, Terraforming Mars, Ticket to Ride, and Wingspan. So quite the list of games they have. There's only one game on this list that I feel even remotely competent at to compete in a serious way, and I think you could guess, Ian. I mean, I think I think you're going to say Blood Rage. I'm going to 100% say Blood Rage. That's the only <laughs> game out of that list that I feel comfortable with, that I really know the rules and that I am actually could be hypothetically competitive with. I thought that I was good at Splendor. When we play Splendor together as a group, I feel competent and competitive. I feel like I have, I've won it or I'm in the running to win it. Uh, I started playing. Well, I've beat you. I mean, I've beat you (laughs) at Splendor. Do we need to like, I let you win. Definitely. You have never let anyone win a game (laughs) in your whole life. You would die. (laughs) You you would absolutely die before you let anybody beat you in a board game. I've never heard you lie so hard on this podcast. You know, you're not, you're not wrong. So, uh, if that is the only thing I can say about it is if I beat you at anything, I earned it. Uh, so, uh, but no, I thought I was good at Splendor. And so I started playing it on, I've, I've, I think I've talked about this on the podcast. I started playing it on Board Game Arena and quickly found out that like, oh, I don't even understand how this game works. This is just chaos. I've gotten just absolutely destroyed. Uh, that game's been out too long because people have like mass. It's like solve. Any game that's been out long enough for people to solve, you don't want to be in that. So you're basically just jumping in on Blood Rage and that's about it for you, huh? I mean, if I was like gun in my head, I had to jump into another one. I would probably pick. I'd probably pick Azul, uh, because I like that game and I, uh, I feel like okay at it. Uh, but nothing else on that list I feel even remotely competent at. That, that's funny because like Azul and Blood Rage are actually the two games that I like immediately gravitated towards. That's like, hilarious. Like, Terraforming Mars is probably one of my favorite games of all time, but I've kind of realized that. Maybe I'm not that good at it. Like, my wife beats me at it so much. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you just need to give your tickets to her. I mean, I just love playing that game. But, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, you know, Blood Rage, I think I've won that a couple times. And uh, Azul kind of has some, like, like some I don't know, some chill Sudoku vibes. I just, I love that game. Yeah. I mean, Azul's, Azul's good. There's a certain uh, randomness to Azul that, Azul that I think you could, like... Uh, you could luck out and it could kind of, uh, you know, go your way. You could get back into it. But, like, the games that I feel like, honestly, would be, like, super sweaty would honestly be these games that have been out long enough for there to be really complex strategies that people have formed. Like, I bet Catan at a high level is probably unrecognizable <laughs> to Catan as you play it around uh, the table with your friends. And it's probably, you, you probably wouldn't want anything to do with some high-level Catan play. Uh, Splendor. Uh, I couldn't even imagine Ticket to Ride at this junction the games that game's been out so long and people that really know it oh yeah i'd i'd jump into i think wingspan and carcassonne would be my games of choice i, I think that's what i'd, I'd go for wingspan because i just I, I feel like i feel like i get that game in a way and i've been playing carcassonne that was my initial that was my start in board game was carcassonne so i've been playing that for you know a couple decades now yeah i've only played carcassonne two times that's a, that's a weird blind spot in my in my thing i'm shocked at dune imperium being on this list um, you know they had they had game. to jump on the bandwagon. Yeah. So, 
so I am curious as one follow-up to this. So let's say you get your two games, you've made it through, you're in the finals now. And the way that this works is that, so you're not, you, you are guaranteed to not play the games that you won beforehand. So you have to be good at multiple games. So in this final, you don't get to play the two games you picked, but you also get the opportunity to veto a single game from the list. What is the game that you would fear most playing in a final? Uh... Dennis, what are you thinking? (laughs) What do you you think? Oh, I would never play Blood Rage in a final because that game can crush you and I'm not good enough at it. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I I might say Brass, Birmingham. Oh, yeah? I think so. I don't know that. I don't know what's different about that one from the one from Brass uh, Lancaster, Bra- Brass Worcestershire. So, so Brass, <laughs> Brass Worcestershire, uh, Brass, Brass <laughs> Lancashire is uh, more on the Euro side and Brass Birmingham is more on the Ameritrash side is the way I've heard it described. So it has zombies. <laughs> zombies with top hats. I'd, pl- I'd play that actually. <laughs> Gentlemen Zombies. Is that a game? Did we just invent something? All right. I... Okay, so there's several games on here that I've never played, so they would all be I don't even it wouldn't even know what to expect. Dominant Species Marine. I've actually never even heard of Acquire. Is that a classic game that I just am totally unaware of? Gotta be honest, I'm gonna show my ignorance here, but I'm actually not sure, so I, I can't give you I don't know what Acquire is. Uh, Dominant Species Marine, uh, Great Ocean Trail, never played Raw. So there's several on here I've never played, so I couldn't know for sure, but I think what I would veto would actually be this is gonna sound crazy. I would veto Wingspan. Wow. Uh, I don't. My inner, my enthusiasm for Wingspan is entirely rooted in playing with all the little toys and looking at the pictures and reading uh, the bird facts. Like <laughs> playing Wingspan to play it in earnest and try to like actually win feels like torture to me. I feel like all the game's oh. worst qualities would be on display. I just I just read the description of of Acquire. Invest, divest, and stage hostile takeovers in this classic real estate game. Ooh. I'm not going to lie, that, that sounds quite interesting. I'm going to divest and play in that. Simon's <laughs> uh, next Kickstarter actually is going to be a choir colon zombies. <laughs> going to have a two foot tall like uh, zombie version of uh, Mr. Moneybags from uh, Monopoly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man. So that's that's the game for this week. I just wanted to try do something a little bit different, have some fun with that. We are going to move on to our main discussion where we're going to be breaking down some legacy games for you. So we will get to that in just a second. All right, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates, where we're going to go ahead and dive into our main topic this week, which is games you don't just play once and put on the shelf, but games you play over and over again, and that is legacy games. Uh, a growing and now almost sort of ubiquitous trend in board games. It's uh, the idea of games that uh, that evolve and change with you and grow over time, sometimes telling a complex story or gaining complex new rules and adjustments. Uh, they are they can be a lot of fun. They can also misfire in different ways. So we thought we we're going to break that down and take a look at our experience with legacy gaming. Uh, Ian, why don't you uh, kick us off and uh, get the discussion going? Yeah, so we wanted to dive into the legacy genre because, you know, it's one of those interesting game-like designs that sort of transcends other genres because you can have various, lots of different games that use this idea. Really, the legacy genre began with Risk Legacy. What if each game of Risk actually affected the next game you played? Instead of it being just a isolated game, what if 
the choices you make actually affect things as you move forward. And so that was really the idea behind Risk. Originally, the creator of Risk Legacy actually was thinking about doing a Clue Legacy game, fascinatingly enough, because his idea was, well, why do the same people keep ending up at the same house? Like, how does that make any sense? And he thought, what if we built a storyline off of that? And that didn't end up happening, but he moved to, to Risk, and there was an attempt to build a story through the various games that were told. Now, Risk Legacy did kind of famously get a little bit messy with its story and things kind of got crazy towards the end of it. But there's been a lot of different games that have used this. You know, Scythe has has Scythe has done this. A lot of the popular like RPG type games that we have now, like Gloomhaven and Descent, these are also legacy games. They build on each other. You have Pandemic Legacy, one of the most popular legacy games. So there's lots of different ways that different genres of games, different types of experiences have used the legacy game. And so we just kind of wanted to compare and contrast them a little bit and say, so what is what works? How have different games kind of taken that idea and run with it? Have they made it better? How has it maybe detracted from the game? Is it always a good thing to add? And so we kind of wanted to look at the various mechanics that are used. Obviously, there's a progression. You have to actually things have to change from game to game based on what's happened. A lot of them will also use the cards that you're playing with. Some people, some games will have you destroy cards. Some games will have you add more cards in. So there's going to be a changing like resources that you'll often be working with. There's a lot of stuff. Dennis, for you, what, what really makes a legacy game? Like when somebody says this is a legacy game, what are you looking for? I mean, it's going to be something, something fresh from session to session. You know, it, it's going to be a familiar game, so you don't have to relearn the rules every time you sit down and play. But something unexpected is going to happen that's going to keep you hooked and, and looking forward to that next session. I think that's that probably defines legacy games for me. So yeah, so obviously you're looking for that. So we're going to jump right into it. And I think it, it could be worthwhile to start with one of the most popular games out there if we start with Pandemic Legacy. Dennis, this is one that you've played through. You've played the season one, I believe. I think you might be in season two, but obviously one of the most lauded legacy games out there really helped to make it a popular way to play games. And how does that use the legacy format in a way that really benefits it? So, sure. So, you know, with uh, with Pandemic Legacy, um, I mean, you're starting out with base game, you know, Pandemic. If, if you ever played Pandemic before, I mean, the first session, you're literally... You know, you've got four viruses and you're trying to, to stop them and, and find a cure and save the world. And then it very quickly goes off the rails. Like, if I remember right, I think it's the first session. Like, the, the whole game just, like, turns upside down. You know, all of a sudden you have a, a virus that, that you can't cure anymore. Oh, no, what are you going to do? You know, oh, it's, it's infecting everything. Like, countries are shutting down. And it's, you know, <laughs> and when we started playing it... Um, <laughs> Last year, I believe, so right in the middle of the pandemic, <laughs> and it like, and it was eerie how closely uh, that game uh, tracked with you know events in the real world. What a lovely piece of escapist entertainment! <laughs> Let's escape from the the difficult day to day in this game of global pandemic and terror. But I mean, you know, so after that first, you know, like big twist, um, you know, there are several other like major twists in that game that I don't want to spoil that that really keep you hooked i mean you think you have a handle on it and then the game throws something at you that just comes out of left field and you know completely turns the paradigm upside down so you're still playing pandemic but you're not still playing pandemic you know you're playing something new and exciting 
I gotta be honest. I don't know what the big twist is in Pandemic. I have successfully managed to avoid it uh, for many years now. I still haven't played Pandemic Legacy, <laughs> but there's something looming over this game that must make it really good. Because I mean, it's it's not just the most popular Legacy game. It's number two on Board Game Geek well, overall. Because exactly. <laughs> even if you, because uh, I'm trying to think in my mind. So even if you were playing a, a variant of Pandemic that changed the rules a little bit and like amped up the stakes in various ways and maybe even added a little bit of narrative like that would probably be fun but it would it be like greatest game of all time fun so whatever the twist is it must be pretty good it must really shake things up and make the game feel wild it's it's pretty good and then and then season two um i know that kind of that kind of was a mixed uh had some mixed reviews for a lot of folks but i'm about halfway through it and we're really loving it i mean the premise of season two is what would happen if uh, if the world ended after season one? Like the heroes didn't save the day, and yeah. it's like you know it's like a hundred years in the future, and you're left trying to rebuild humanity, uh, Ooh, and it's, it's grim. And and that really completely changes that that game does change the the base mechanics of Pandemic in a in a meaningful way. Um, so that's interesting. So. Yeah. It sounds like the first season really just keeps the main mechanics. So how does, like you said, each each game really feels fresh and like you're yeah. doing something different and throw stuff. How does it keep it fresh? Like, is it just obviously without spoiling too much, it changes the rules and sort of the framework you're allowed to work within stuff like that. Like I imagine as countries close off, maybe you can't move around the map as freely stuff like that. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it limits, you know, cer- certain things can limit your, your movements, your characters. Um, so at the start of the game, you're going to pick a character that, that you're going to um, play, you know, from game session to game session. So your character might gain, you know, scars if something bad happens to them that hurt that uh that can limit their actions. They might gain special powers. Your character might even die if you if you uh are very unlucky. Uh, and then you have to basically, you know, make a new character to play in future sessions. I mean, you're constantly opening, you know, little hatches and little doors to to add mechanics to the game or to um, you know, change things on the map. And, you know, yes, there's definitely, you know, destruction of cards. The first time we we had to tear up some cards, it was uh, Pandemic Legacy was really the first legacy game, you know, we've played. And that was kind of a that that moment I won't forget. Like, we actually have to rip this thing up. Yes. The rules say rip it up. That kills me as a a board gamer. That's something we haven't talked about. But that is integral to what has become kind of the legacy experience. This. Uh, uh, both this kind of this feeling of opening up sealed packages and boxes. So, so creating a sense of surprise out of the board gaming and then also uh, destroying or or permanently altering. Not every game has you you rip up, but uh, a lot of games incorporate stickers or a marker or something so that you permanently change some part of the board. And there, I think there are two brilliant things about that. And uh, we haven't really uh, said his name, but it needs to be said. Rob Davio, who created uh, Risk Legacy and also designed Pandemic Le- Legacy, is sort of uh, the the ge- he he's ba- he basically created uh, the modern uh, our our sort of our modern understanding of what a legacy game is, and he founded these two kind of key elements, and they're genius in like two ways because. For better or worse, one of the things that happens with a board game is after you open it up and you punch all of the components out and you read the manual and you set it all up, the minute before you've even played the game, you've seen everything that the game has to offer. Uh, it's one of the big uh, differences between uh, board gaming and video gaming is there's no surprises in most board games. Like you literally have a 
full understanding of everything in the box and how it's all going to come into play. Uh, so these little tuck boxes and little sealed bags create surprise, which is something that's never really been there before. And then just this whole thing of like permanently changing the game that runs totally counter to our mind of like never, (laughs) never damaging or altering the board. The board is sacred. The cards are sacred, you know, like uh, to, to tear up a card and take it out of the game. Like that just, that, that makes our, that already puts you in a tense place as a gamer and shakes your uh, expectations up. So, uh, these were brilliant uh, design uh, flourishes that he added to these games that we've seen repeated time and time again. I think it's part of the appeal and what makes legacy gaming so exciting. So one thing I want to springboard off is the idea that Pandemic does incorporate this really like fleshed out story and it builds. And there's a lot of games we want to talk about, but I kind of want to go to, I think for us, the other end of the spectrum. And I want to talk about Scythe because, of course, Scythe is a great game. I, I love playing that game, but we played the legacy version of that game. I believe we played eight or nine sessions worth um, where we go through. And I think we all kind of left with a little bit of a bitter taste in our mouths. Me, maybe less so because I won the whole thing, not to brag. <laughs> but Humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that is, I, I do think we all sort of felt like it didn't serve the game and in, in some ways actually maybe detracted. Matt, I know you have a lot of feelings about this one. So where, where do you think the, the where, do, where do you think that fell and why didn't legacy gaming work for Scythe in the same way? Well, I mean, I think uh, the simple fact that it was trying to retrofit uh, legacy elements into a game that wasn't really designed for it. And I think that just didn't work. Because at the end of the day, you were just playing 10 plus sessions of uh, Scythe over and over again. And the surprises and elements that were added to the game were much more limited than the types of surprises and elements that you see being added in other legacy games. So to kind of jump ahead, like another one of the games that we played together as a group is Charterstone. And uh, we'll kind of break it down in more detail uh, probably in a few moments. But in Charterstone, when you add something new to the board, it's a new component that didn't exist before. It's a new uh, move or a new uh, wrinkle to the game's mechanics that that wasn't there before. And so each session of Charterstone over time, it becomes a progressively more complex and interesting game. The last few sessions of Charterstone are totally different than the first couple of sessions of Charter Song. I think that's more what you're looking for out of a legacy game. If you're going to ask me to play this 15 times in a row, <laughs> it needs to be getting fresh. It needs to be getting more interesting as it goes along. And Scythe Legacy was just Scythe over and over and over again. And if you love Scythe, it's probably fine. But if you don't particularly love Scythe, or if you think Scythe is just okay, it's going to wear thin after a while. Because even a great game like Scythe, you can only play it so many times week after week before like it just starts to feel repetitive so like my thoughts on this on scythe legacy um i think maybe when we played it maybe we rushed through it too fast like i don't think we read all of the story elements i think uh and just playing it you know week after week you know like you said it, it got kind of repetitive and you know me i i love and i i know you do too matt um you know we both love a good story yes and we kind of I think we kind of did the abridged version of that campaign. Yeah. It's almost like we, we, we bought a, a fine wine and then chugged it. <laughs> well, that's probably, you're probably not wrong. I do think, 
yeah, I think you're actually you're absolutely right. I think that this what's what that game probably had going for it, what it adds to Scythe is not so much that legacy experience of an evolving gameplay because it does add new types of units and things, but none of them feel like that they yeah. really shake the game up. You know, it's, it's just Scythe. You know, it still feels like just Scythe. But what that game does add is an overarching story to the experience of playing Scythe. And, and Scythe is a very evocative game. It's got this really immersive setting, but it's never really had a narrative before. And so the idea of playing multiple sessions of Scythe that tell a story was pretty novel. But you're right, we blew through that. We didn't take the time to read the narrative passages from the campaign book, and we didn't get a chance to get to know these people. So when major characters started showing up in the last two or three acts... I was kind of like, all right, who's this guy? Why do, they have a weird <laughs> Why do we care about him? Why do we care about him? <laughs> yeah. I, I think to jump off that a little bit, though, like the reason I think the story maybe felt kind of off is also the story often negatively impacted the game to a certain extent. And maybe this comes down from the information. Maybe we intentionally like didn't read far enough to get the full scope. But there's a, a couple, to spoil it a little bit, there's a couple different uh, scenarios within the Scythe legacy where when a certain action is taken the game ends that round. It immediately ends. And that was something going into those rounds, we didn't know that would end the game immediately. We were not aware that that would happen. Now, maybe that was us not reading far enough into it. But regardless, the story, when we got to the story, the story cut us off. And because we weren't ready for it, it made that experience of playing that round genuinely terrible. Because, I mean, Scythe is all about building your engine, moving forward, becoming yeah. this inexorable force. And if the game could end at any time, you have to be ready for that. And because we weren't, it made it feel really bad. And so yeah. I think like when you're building an overarching story, you know, that could have been us doing it incorrectly. But I think it just you need to make sure that the story's not getting in the way of the game. And I do think that there were a lot of times in the Scythe Legacy campaign that the story kept you from enjoying the game. The, the choices that, that we as the players made in that campaign didn't matter in the end. You know, if you guys remember in the last game session, whoever wins the last game session wins the whole campaign. It's like, yeah. it's like, in a, it's, it's like the ending of Mass Effect 3. You know, you go through all that, and then do you pick red, blue, or green? Yeah, it, felt pretty <laughs> it was pretty binary in the end. I did forget, though, there is one thing that it adds that I had mixed feelings about over the course of the game. Uh, it uh, it does change the core side formula in one way in that you get these little upgrade tokens that you add to your pool that give you some start they give you some extra actions or bonuses that you can do uh, and it's all designed to get your engine like going faster like maybe you get uh, some extra money or resources or you get a card that lets you take like uh, an action for free a card a little token that you cash in and you buy these with with points or money that you accrue over the course of each session. Uh, I think those actually kind of broke Scythe a little bit because I noticed our games of Scythe that we played when we were playing the Legacy campaign were really fast and kind of nasty because people were able to build up really quickly and start spreading around the map and there was a lot more... I don't know. Scythe, I think, is meant to be more of a slow burn where people inch toward conflict a little bit more tentatively but when people are like ramping up their production really fast and like just a few turns and next thing you know, mechs are just like charging across. <laughs> uh, it, it really changed Scythe in a way that made it less fun. So this is one of the rare uh, moments where I think a legacy uh, variation did not improve the core game all that much. I would say that if you're an absolute diehard fan of, of Scythe, 
getting the legacy box is probably still worth it because you get a bunch of new units a bunch of cool stuff that you could then incorporate into a and, base game of scythe and it's the only legacy game i know of that you know you open up the instructions and it literally says hey by the way this whole campaign is optional you can just tear everything open right now and add it to the base game one thing that we kept saying as we were playing through it was that it felt in many ways like a tutorial of the it felt like a tutorial of the various expansions that you can get and so to kind of jump off of that i, I want to talk about another game that in many ways some have criticized as just an extended tutorial and i want to talk about charterstone because that's a game that matt we played through i've played it through almost three times now i think um wow. with various groups i've come to really like that game and people have said that it is just an extended tutorial of the game because each time you're adding something new like you said as you gain new cards you're going to change the game which really because that i mean that's the whole concept of charterstone as a game you begin you each have it's a and in, in, in some ways it's like a city building game where you have your patch of land and as you progress through the game you're going to build new buildings that give you further actions to do and you can place your workers there you can place your workers on other people's buildings all this sort of stuff and so as the game progresses people continue to build more buildings there are more actions that become available on the map your own little charter that you can build becomes better and better and better as you gain synergies that you can work through you can gain more and more points so you really begin to speed up it's a very long form engine builder in many ways and so as you add these new buildings new cards come out every time you build buildings you gain new abilities you gain new workers all new cards new ways to score all these sorts of things so it is kind of a tutorial in a sense but one of the things that i think makes it different is that like the the journey is the game not so much the destination because you have the option to play with your finished charter at the end but without the cards and the characters that you've built up it kind of feels like it feels kind of soulless and i think a part of the what makes that game so fun is working with the stuff that you have and, and feeling it progress and moving forward so the journey really makes that game in a lot of ways matt how did you feel about this game as we played it oh i completely agree i mean i i see the criticism of like oh it's basically a tutorial it's basically a game that's teaching you how to play the more uh, fully realized version of itself that will exist at the end of the game when you've added everything to the board. But I kind of like that as a model for a legacy game, right? Because if you just started with like, I don't know, the full like robust version of Charleston on the first game, and then you were just being asked to play it like, <laughs> it's that same thing of like, you're just going to play this 10, 15 times in a row. Uh, and the only thing that's going to change about it is maybe some small elements of the board or, you know, you get extra, you know, your cart, your characters that you have or whatever, You're, you know, if nothing really was changing over the course of the game, it would get super boring. But the fact is that each time you sit down to play Charterstone, it gets a little bit more complex. It starts out as a very, very basic worker placement game, probably too basic for most serious gamers. And that's probably why people bounced off of it. Those first couple of sessions, it's just like, really? This is a Stolenmeyer game? There's not a lot going on. Well, it's because the world's not been fully, like, built up. Uh, so it starts out as a very simple worker placement game that gets a little bit more complex. So get a few more layers to the parfait are getting added with every game. <laughs> and by the end, you got a fully realized thing. Uh, it, it wins a lot of favor, too, in my mind because of just how darn charming it is. It has... Some people probably take it or leave it on the art, but I think it's charming. 
I think watching your little settlement build up is great. I think your little villagers that you acquire and name. Uh, if you're a type of person that starts building little stories in your head about who everybody is and what's going on, and the, I, I mean, I still remember I had the little brick uh, civilization, and we were like the proud like brick laying people. And like I was actually by the end of the game, I knew I was kind of not winning it, so I was making choices about the buildings to acquire just based on like the thematic idea I had in my head of what like kind of town I was building, and they didn't even make sense like engine building wise. But I was like, I don't want to chocolate factory we don't have chocolate here we're brick people you know the famous <laughs> like, pumpkin pumpkin and a brick uh song pumpkin and a brick walking down the street <laughs> that classic what? song that cla- we still sing that every time we play charterstone it's, it's amazing uh, that, the game allows you to build like you said that you build these stories because you're in the same charter because you can see other people building them the same way you start to the entire like group of you have this story that you work on together in many ways there is an overarching story that the game does have but it's kind of bare bones but the best part and what i think makes this game a fun legacy game is the discovery it's it's less about you're not actually getting rid of cards you're not tearing anything up but what it does have is there's essentially a chest that sits on the side and so there's a big chest full of cards when you start the game and you look at it and you're like oh so we're gonna go through like all of that and as you begin to make choices as you build buildings you begin to open these and that's one of the most fun parts of the game especially when you're playing around a table with a lot of people is oh somebody's opened a chest what do we what do we got coming out oh we got minions this time oh man what do these do what is this building how do i get that what is this effect oh we got items now you know yeah new objectives the the fun it's like opening a christmas present every time you get a new box and that's the discovery the discovery that the game allows you to have every game you play multiple times a game is one of the best parts of it yeah by the time like robots and golems like show up like you know the world of the game has like uh really widened like quite a bit so i mean i like it i could totally see why some people don't like it the 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 look of the game may be too cartoony uh those first few sessions before the layers of complexity buildup might be so elementary that some people just bounced hard off of it and thought this is a huge waste of time, but you kind of have to stick with it. And the story, uh, I will say this about the story. Uh, it's a good story. It actually, uh, there's a dramatic moment that happened when we played the game that is still one of the like few times in the history of gaming that I can remember where something happened. Everybody gasped around the table it was truly amazing, but it does run out of steam and doesn't actually build. I mean, there's a story about it. Gosh, it's been so long since I've played it, Ian. What is it, like the Eternal King or the Immortal King or something? Yeah, is a, that is an eternal, eternal King who you begin to learn things about who may not be as benevolent as you think. Or maybe he is. A lot of yeah. it depends on whether you anger him or please him. There's there's choices there, but it does start to It, it, does start it to runs out of steam. It feels like it's building up towards something a lot more epic than ultimately happens. It just kind of, in the end, you just kind of play uh, one last massive game of Charterstone and somebody is crowned the winner. And that's okay. It, that's just fine. So I think this is a good one. I think it is, uh, I think it in its own way, I think it is a different approach to uh, a game. It doesn't have quite the narrative wow of a pandemic legacy, I don't think, but it does, uh, it layers on complexity in a way that justifies like multiple plays. <laughs> Yeah. The one thing, last thing I, the last thing I think I would say about it is that the map actually is two-sided. The board is two-sided. And uh, 
when you're done playing, you can send in for replacements of the cards you used. You, you save the copies of when you bring new stuff out, and you can just flip the board over and play again if you want to start from the beginning, which I, I think is really nice. It keeps you from having to buy the game again, and it keeps it fresh, which is pretty cool. Um, but it is interesting that you do have a game on the far end, like Pandemic Legacy being so great in terms of story, and then something like Charterstone, which honestly you may take it or leave it, so it's interesting how story can kind of factor into that. So that's something we did talk about a little bit a couple episodes ago. We were talking about Near and Far and Above and Below, where my wife and I did go through the Near and Far campaign. And that's similar in some ways to the the, the Scythe where the, the Scythe campaign where it doesn't add a ton. It does add the ability to gain extra story, but you do find that the story can sometimes get choppy because you're not gaining all of it because you have to play the game in a potentially suboptimal way if you really want to experience it and you have to play it almost as a cooperative like story telling experience if you want to get the most so sometimes story can story, there can be a mixed bag when you look at story in board games so i want to focus on you know a game that of course is almost all story you know if we look at gloomhaven which is you know definitely a legacy game you're constantly you know, progressing on it. In many ways, it's, you know, a, one of the RPG games that, that we have, you know, similar to things like Descent and stuff like that, where it kind of has to be a legacy game. But of course, it is still a legacy game, and it's very much based around its story. We played a bit of that together, guys. How do you feel that compares to some of these? I mean, you bring up, an, I guess you brought up an interesting point about the RPG aspect. I mean, maybe you could make the argument that Dungeons & Dragons is the original legacy game. Um, but not everybody you know, has the time or, you know, the energy to sit down and study, you know, six different, you know, player handbooks and put together encounters and, you know, be a dungeon master for a, for a group of players. So Gloomhaven, I think, really kind of fits that bill for people that just don't have the time to devote to a, a proper uh, role-playing game. Well, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, that's an interesting point. The idea that Dungeons and Dragons was the original legacy game, but it it does sort of. Uh, I think it is sort of applicable to a certain extent in the idea that it's a game that you're going to get together with friends and play over a long period of time, and it's the same game every week, but it's also very different by the nature of it being improvised and random. But how do you put that in a box? Gloomhaven, as much as anybody, cracked that formula of how to put. A role-playing game in a box and they did it by giving you a really long complex branching narrative storybook to play around with and a bunch of uh, modular pieces that you could assemble together to make different dungeons and adventures and they gave you a way to kind of bring uh, a Dungeons and Dragons like experience to life and you know for the most part I think they really succeeded uh, it is we've talked about Gloomhaven on the show I like it and I don't love it I've got my mixed feelings about it um, my biggest sort of complaint is that um, it did uh, it to me the the basic power progression of Gloomhaven runs counter to what I want out of a good role playing game, which is that instead of feeling like more powerful, if you don't make the right choices about what cards to bring into your hand when you go into a particular scenario, you actually feel like you've gotten weaker. <laughs> and work worse off and the more uh cards you're getting in your pool uh the more comp the more 
difficult it is to make smart choices about what to do as you proceed. The game actually becomes increasingly stressful for me <laughs> the longer you play and the more you develop your character, which doesn't feel like how that should work. It's interesting that in, in many ways it's the most non-linear of the legacy games we're talking about, and understandably so. I think it needed to be to be successful in the way that it is, but you can really do whatever you want in the way you can't really do in any of these other games i mean charterstone does give you choices and what you can do and each game each time you play the campaign it's going to be different but that's purely based on on what you're given and what you know you're able to do minute to minute whereas gloomhaven really is just about as open as it can possibly be once you get past the original couple quests that you have and you go through it really kind of opens up and i mean i think in many ways for me that was it was almost too much because i I find the same thing. That's why I, I barely play any RPGs at all. That's why I've never played Skyrim because it gets to that moment where it opens up and I'm like, that's too many choices. I can't, <laughs> I have, I have to do all of them or I will do none of them. And so I choose none of them. And then I, and then I, uh, you know, I leave. So, but I, I think a lot of people really liked that, that it took the legacy format and it expanded it to astronomical proportions. It just said, not only do your choices matter, your choices are whatever you want them to be. They are infinite yeah that is uh, a really great point and that's something that i don't think uh we have said on the show before about the game it's a great observation is that it it, it does recreate the open world the feel of an open world role-playing game as much as you can on like paper because it doesn't take you to i guess we should probably you know for people that never played it, it it's not just a series of like linear like mission one mission two mission three and you flip your way through the book which is what a lot of like uh, story-driven campaign games do. And I guess that would probably be the key difference between a quote-unquote campaign game and a legacy game. Uh, this game is, uh, you get multiple like uh, potential quests you can do in any given session. And you pick the one that, that makes sense for your story or what your character wants to do. And uh, you go to that place on the map, and the outcome of that may open up different options. So it really is a little bit like a forking series of like paths. Uh, it's it's pretty brilliant that's a great uh part of it it's just at the end of the day you're still just kind of playing this very repetitive uh card driven card play game that's very thinky uh but almost uh too much for me what i think is really interesting about it though is that it does retain some of the removal aspects that various legacy games have like i know dennis you were playing a character when we began and as we move through the campaign your character hit an endpoint in their journey yes. and you proceeded to play a secondary character so we actually took a character and just removed it from the game we didn't have the opportunity to go back to that character and uh, that's you know that can be for good and bad i, I like that they commit to the progression and to actually having like consequences as you move forward in story arcs but I, I remember like it kind of changed the way you had to play and it didn't necessarily make it more fun depending on what you get right you know i, I was you know I, I liked my little my little rattling character that i had uh <laughs> for the first you know eight or nine sessions that we played and then i and then i uh and then ironically the character i got was a doctor and i just did not like playing him because his special power was he handed out medical packs which so you know one one key mechanic of of uh, Gloomhaven is that the players are all competing against each other. So uh, you know if if somebody gets loot, it's their loot. It is it is not the party's loot. 
So for this character to be handing out medical packs to other teammates and getting nothing in return, just, I don't know. That I remember when you unlocked that character, and it really was like a weird change in the dynamic of how we were playing the game, because Gloomhaven does have this kind of quasi-competitive thing where the party is working together, but you're sort of racing to get gold and loot ahead of the other players. It's a little bit cutthroat in a way that I think some people might bounce off of, but to suddenly be playing a support class in that is uh, probably a bit weird and a bit jarring. I had a similar thing where I went from playing a rogue to that character retired, and I unlocked this bizarre uh, insect guy that was sort of a magic user, and it had a weird... It, it took my interest out of the game. I think the retirement system is one where uh, it, it takes the the legacy game element of surprise and maybe doesn't use it to the player's advantage. Because uh, what happens in Gloomhaven is when you reach a certain, when you complete uh, a, a certain objective for the character you're playing, that character retires, and you get to open a little secret box and unlock a new character that you're going to play. But you don't know what that character is, and it might be something that you don't like, and that can be kind of lame. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's where I think sometimes in a legacy game, you, you know, you want surprises, but you don't want to foist the surprise onto the player that maybe uh, forces them to play in a way that they don't want to play. Yeah, going back to um, Scythe just for a second, that's one of the things where as you go through the campaign, you unlock new factions and people are given the opportunity to change their faction. The person who discovers it can change to that faction. You have the opportunity at various moments to change back if you don't like that. So they give you ways to work around that because sometimes you do get a version of like the game. Sometimes you do just get a character that plays the way you don't want to play. But I am curious, Matt, as to how that potentially differs from a game like Descent. Because I know that you and Max did play through a campaign of Descent uh, at one point so is that like how does that differ from something like gloomhaven do you feel like that there's benefits to it or so i'll say this uh i wanted to bring up descent because it is a sort of an early like proto version of a legacy experience it but it is more of a campaign game and there are some distinctions between those so uh but with descent which is a dungeon crawl uh like experience just like gloomhaven they dropped an app uh, sort of late in the life of Descent 2nd Edition that would allow you to play cooperatively and take you through a scripted narrative series of dungeons and encounters and uh, let you uh, have that Dungeons and Dragons-like experience with a game managing your inventories and the shops and the music and the story and all these other things that happen and running all the encounters and the monsters. I think it worked really, uh, really re well. It just it, it wasn't a true legacy game in the way that we're describing it in the sense that it doesn't have those secrets. It doesn't have those hidden boxes. It doesn't have uh, those kind of permanent uh, changes to the game state, but it does tell a really good uh, narrative story that sort of justifies playing multiple sessions of the same game for like weeks on end. And it took you through a classic story that ended in a big dungeon crawl and fighting a dragon at the end. And it was really, really fun. And you got the sense of your character progressing and getting more powerful. You acquired more gear and all these things. There are uh, branching, quasi-branching choices that you can make. There are side quests that you can play. And you can pick them up in different orders. But it's not anywhere near as sophisticated as the branching quest system of 
uh, Gloomhaven, but it is a little more narratively satisfying, cohesive, and uh, I, I I really recommend it. I think it kind of uh, it it was a lot of fun. If you want that uh, a, a role playing like experience that's a little closer to D and D with dice rolling and other things, I think it's worth a look. I think it's genuinely just very interesting to see how wide the scope can be because of course i mean the legacy game is something that spans a lot of different genres and so you have so many different ways that it can be implemented and of course you know there's continually more games coming out i mean gloomhaven came out and changed a lot of the way that was done risk legacy is actually going to have a, a new uh game come out and a second second edition of that that's going to change a lot and it's going to try and update on the things the first one did and and make it more fun so there's still a lot of interesting things happening because you can get different genres jump in like it really allows you to play with various versions of, of making your choices count which i think is i think is really exciting and i think there's a lot of games that really do benefit from that so let me ask you guys an off the wall question here what what game that we play now would you guys want to have turned into a legacy game? That's a good question. Oh, I like that. Hmm. Uh, what game? I feel like I want to go look at my shelf of board games right now. <laughs> I mean, I think it's obvious. Wingspan Legacy. I mean, it's just, you have <laughs> like, you, you unlock new birds, <laughs> you unlock new bird powers. Suddenly, you know, uh, plot twist and avian flu is like wiping out the bird population. You've got a race to find a cure. Uh, you know, Galactus shows up. I think the possibilities are endless <laughs> with uh, Wingspan uh, Legacy. So there's a lot of games that immediately pop to mind, but actually I think it'd be really interesting to see a legacy version of either terraforming Mars or on Mars, one of the Mars based games. Those two in particular, I think would be really interesting, especially terraforming mm -hmm. Mars. If you had some form of progression from the last game, some way that maybe Mars was already affected in a way and you have to, to, build off of that maybe the game is broken down into smaller pieces so instead of doing the whole process of terraforming mars at once you're doing a small little bit of it and then where you got to that time will actually affect where you start the next round and you know how do you as a corporation do progressively each time how can you move forward and will you get maybe you can get grants based on how well you did like if you're lagging behind the governments on earth want you know they want competition so you get extra grants to make sure that you can catch up and if you're super far ahead you know then you don't get a lot of help but you already have a lot of yeah. you know infrastructure oh, cool. built up i i think that'd be awesome that I think would a be terraforming awesome. mars legacy would be very cool my thought was uh was dinosaur island oh yes yeah yeah i mean you just you know you start off with like some pretty basic dinosaurs and you know accidents happen you you create some genetic monstrosities i mean sure. there, there's just so many cool possibilities with that yeah and then there's zombie dinosaurs, and then black, <laughs> and they go uh, the possibilities are endless. Uh, you know, a game that I am shocked never got a legacy variant uh, when it was sort of in the zeitgeist is uh, Dead of Winter. Uh, that feels prime to me to uh, run as a legacy, where you take the experience of building up the colony and play it out over uh, multiple play sessions. Uh, imagine the tension of like the traitor, but like it playing out over weeks and months and you still not knowing <laughs> like who the traitor is. 
and uh wow and then you know maybe you have like parts of the board that get overrun by zombies and you can't even go to those locations anymore until you make some drastic push to get them out or something i mean there's that feels like there could be a lot of ways to do a legacy there's got to be a legacy zombie game is that not a thing do we need to invent that am i are we sitting on a gold miner here there you get, <laughs> get on it matt that's oh that's such a fun question i i would love to see some of those come out we got to get on that guys that is going to be our episode on legacy games though Thanks, Dennis, for joining us, of course. Very happy to have you on. Glad to be here, guys. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we go. This is going to be our last episode of 2021. We're taking our extended Christmas break. We will be back in January. Give ourselves a little bit of time to reset, recharge. And, of course, the holidays are just crazy anyways. And everyone's going to be traveling. It's going to be busy. So we're going to take a break. We'll be back. But we are excited to do more episodes after that. If people do want to get in touch with us, Matt, where can they do that? You can find us, as always, on Instagram at Dice Pirates and uh, keep up with what we're doing. Uh, follow us and keep up with what cool games we get for Christmas. Oh, ooh, who knows? The, poss- <laughs> the possibilities are endless, which is a phrase I've said three times on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Going to be a lot of fun new stuff to play this next year for sure. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you to everyone who listens. I want to give a quick shout out to New Zealand, who is actually our second most popular country now after the United States. So that's that's pretty cool. Thank you guys. Thank you Kiwis. Uh, that's awesome. Pretty exciting. So thank you to everyone for listening. We're excited to come back. Of course, keep an eye out for when we do return. We're excited to do that. But until then, we'll be right here on the Dice Pirates. Mm-hmm.